You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Howard Coe, the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Kennedy School, and faculty co-chair of the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, September 16th. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a physician who's trained in multiple fields, cared for patients for some 30 years, but had the privilege of serving as the state health commissioner here in Massachusetts, and then also as the assistant secretary for health in the Obama administration through H1N1. So I've been tracking this pandemic and the pandemic response so closely from the very, very beginning, and really appreciate talking to many of you about how we're doing and where we need to go in the future. Uh, you all know that we're into month eight and counting for this pandemic response in the United States. Uh, it's still a very challenging time. Uh, the fall is very dynamic and very complex because we have so many schools and colleges reopening. Uh, we have the seasonal flu uh, vaccination efforts already uh, on board and ramping up. Uh, we could have a potential second wave of COVID this fall, and then we're all anxiously awaiting a FDA-approved COVID vaccine in the near future. So these are all issues that are consuming our attention right now. Uh, right now, I feel it's very important to keep the public's trust and confidence in public health in any vaccine approval and delivery process as high as possible. And there have been many challenges to achieving that goal that we can discuss. Uh, I think it's really important to send the message of getting the flu vaccine now, uh, making that campaign effective and show that public health is working well to protect people and have that be the foundation for a future COVID vaccination campaign that's upcoming. And then as Nicole mentioned, uh, I've had the privilege of being part of the public health system now for several decades, and we need strong public health now more than ever. One of the reasons why this pandemic has been so devastating uh, is because it came on top of a system that's been under-resourced and overlooked for far too long. So starting with the contact tracing efforts, uh, we, we need to build it back up. And I'm hoping that as we move through this pandemic response and beyond, we really reinvest in public health and public health infrastructure so we can never have something like this happen again. So with that, I can just stop and happy to take any questions from any of you. Great. Thank you, Dr. Koh. Uh, looks like our first question. Hi, thanks for taking questions. Um, I'm wondering, so we've seen some colleges take sort of two-week pauses as they've tried to bring outbreaks on campus under control. So sometimes that means like putting all classes online that had previously been some mix of online and in-person, you know, they'll close their dining halls for takeout only. I'm wondering if these two-week pauses really work. Um, and if they do, how is it that they work? And what are some best practices for those kind of pauses? Thanks. Those are great questions, and we all know that there's no playbook for how to do this right. Um, one of the challenges of colleges reopening is that, for, first of all, the colleges are trying to get 
back on board in different parts of the country where background community transmission rates vary greatly. So to try to do that in places like the Northeast might be a little bit easier since uh, cases and deaths and positivity rates have been going down for a while, uh, as opposed to other parts of the country. Uh, we also know how complicated this is because so many colleges have students from not only from nearby areas, but from around the country and sometimes from around the world. So there's so much dynamic uh, movement going on. I think the two week pause is appropriate to give us time to constantly reassess where we are uh, campus by campus. Uh, there should be a lot of attention to issues like um, distancing, not just on campus, but off campus, not just in class, but out of class. Uh, we're seeing where there have been outbreaks, particularly related to social events off campus. So those have to be monitored carefully. Uh, and then um, another issue that has no consensus really has been any uh, testing protocols and strategies from campus to campus. There, there are no national guidelines and still very, very little research on this. So some campuses have taken the strategy to be very aggressive in the testing. Uh, there was one very important study from JAMA that came out about six weeks ago, uh, suggesting that students may have to be tested up to every other day in order to control the virus uh, at these universities and colleges. So we just have to uh, communicate what's going on uh, as a country, put together the best uh, efforts possible, evaluate, share those data, and then try to generate best practices sooner rather than later. What, how is it exactly that a two-week pause, what is it doing that helps bring outbreaks under control? Well, you get to isolate, uh, identify and isolate the people who are infected. And uh, I know a lot of colleges and universities have made dedicated efforts to uh, have spaces and rooms available for students who are infected so they could be isolated. Uh, and then you need to institute immediately good contact tracing efforts so that if were exposed, they can be quarantined on campus. Uh, we, we're all concerned, by the way, that people who are infected or exposed, if they leave campus too early, they can just go back home to their communities and make the infection spread more. So campuses that have been really proactive in thinking about facilities for isolation and quarantine and then ramping up on contact tracing and testing, uh, I, I think are being much more aggressive about trying to control this. So is it better to, I'm sorry for another question, but um, what you're saying are all things that a campus could do without doing the two week pause. They could contact trace and isolate students without doing a pause. Like what is it that pausing the whole campus does that's helpful? Well, it, it, it clearly uh, lowers the density of students interacting with one another and also if i can say sends a message to the whole community that everyone's got to continue to take this seriously and double down on the public health practices uh, you know so well that uh, so many universities like like ours at harvard are are um, pretty much online and so to, to be as cautious as possible and make sure the whole community is included every step of the way in supporting the goals and then opening up in phases and evaluating at each point in time. Uh, th those are the steps that all universities need to follow right now. Okay, great, thanks very much. 
next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, the CDC put out a playbook for vaccine distribution today, uh, but it seems to leave a lot of the logistical challenges to the states. So I wanted to ask your assessment of how states will be able to handle distribution, not necessarily who should get it, but just the, like the, the nuts and bolts of, of moving a vaccine to different places and getting it into people's arms. Because it was, the, um, it was like the little things that tripped up states during testing, you know, gloves and Q-tips, et cetera. And I'm wondering if you think that's gonna happen again, only this time it'll be sharp kits and band-aids. Okay, well, that's a great question. I, I haven't seen uh, that plan. I was just made aware of it before we went on this call. But, but I can say that when you stop and think about it, the country goes through this extraordinary public health exercise every fall through the seasonal uh, flu vaccination efforts where tens of millions of people are vaccinated and you have federal, state, and local officials working together to get hundreds of millions of doses distributed and then administered uh, all through the umbrella of a broad-scale communication campaign. So as a state health official, I, I did this many times. And then also as the assistant secretary, I was very involved in that seasonal flu vaccination effort. So public health knows how to do this, and it does require very strong communication coordination at the federal, state, and local level. So I assume that this playbook is now building on those efforts with respect to COVID. As I mentioned in my opening comments, I think it's going to be very critical to coordinate the messaging and the efforts around seasonal flu in any COVID vaccination effort that's upcoming uh, to make sure all these coordination efforts are uh, going forward in a positive fashion, but also sending the message to the public that there is a system working on their behalf to protect them against threats. So I'm looking forward to hearing about those uh, communication and coordination efforts. Uh, one uh, feature of the potential COVID vaccine that many of us have heard about is that uh, some of the candidates may require uh, not only two doses, not, not just one, uh, but also special storage in uh, freezers that go as low as minus 80 degrees centigrade. So uh, I assume that's part of the coordination efforts that's uh, addressed in this playbook. If I can just follow up on that for a second, because I, I know it is, you mentioned that there's a, it's, it's building off the flu vaccine, um, but in this country on, on a good year, 40% of adults get the flu vaccine. So we're not exactly great at that. Mm -hmm. um, it, we obviously need a much higher mark with this. And like you said, this is different because there's much higher uh, thresholds for data requirements. There are freezers that may need to be in place. And all of this is sort of being done in a compressed time frame without even knowing what kind of vaccine states will receive yet because it hasn't obviously been approved. So doesn't that make it a lot more challenging than your standard flu season? Absolutely, and your, your points are excellent. You're right, last year, the, the flu vaccination rates overall were about 45%. And there's been uh, increased vaccine hesitancy over the years, which troubles all of us in public health. So. Uh, I, for one, feel it's, it's very important to make this ongoing flu vaccination campaign a major success. It'd be tremendous if we as a country could show that we could get the seasonal flu vaccination rates way over 45%, uh, demonstrate confidence in the whole effort, 
and give us momentum going into a COVID vaccination effort that's going to follow uh, hopefully shortly afterwards. Okay, thank you. I, I may come back for a second round, but thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question. Good morning. Um, following up on that, um, I've heard from some states who plan on independently reviewing the clinical trial data before distributing any COVID vaccine. Um, so I was hoping you could give me a sense of how different that is from, you know, H1N1 when there was broad trust in CDC and ACIP. Um, and what does that say about how much public trust has fallen in FDA and CDC? Um, during this pandemic? Well, there's no doubt that trust and confidence in the federal agencies has been shaken uh, recently, and that's been uh, very difficult to see. And so we, we need to reverse that as a nation immediately. Uh, we need to keep the trust and confidence levels at, at the highest uh, possible standard. Other, otherwise, when a COVID vaccination is, uh, vaccine is approved, uh, people will be reluctant to take it, and then this pandemic will go on indefinitely, and that is an outcome that no one can accept. So, uh, as you're alluding to, we, we need the approval process right now to be followed uh, rigorously and transparently uh, with full accountability. So that includes, as you mentioned, advisory, expert advisory groups like the ACIP, Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, that's CDC, uh, there's another one for FDA that's meeting October 22nd, I believe. Uh, when I was Assistant Secretary, I, I, I oversaw yet another one called NVAC, the National Vaccine Advisory Committee. So there are multiple ones. Uh, given the concerns about trust and confidence right now for a COVID vaccine, I think having all those groups weigh in and review the data and share in the scientific outcomes will be critically important. And so that when the FDA approval comes forward, uh, everybody will accept this as scientifically uh, valid. Now, you, you mentioned particularly states. Uh, there are state organizations. I, I was part of one called uh, this Association for State and Territorial Health Officials, ASTHO. And so it, it could be that that group would be eager to look at some of these outcomes too. And uh, they should be welcome to do that because uh, we need the trust and confidence to be as high as possible. Do you think we could see a scenario where one state decides the evidence is there and to vaccinate and another state doesn't? Oh boy, that, that is something we do. <laughs> that is something we do not want to see. And you know, this is where uh, the overall theme that Nicole mentioned as we got on is critically important. We, we need a, a one nation approach to this pandemic response. And a major challenge has been, we have had 50 states going in 50 different directions uh, each state using their own criteria to reopen uh, and then to, to try to generate a response. Uh, we've even seen states competing against each other for tests and supplies and PPE, and that is not the way to get control of this virus and put this pandemic behind us. So I think whenever a vaccine approval uh, occurs, that's got to be accepted by the country, uh, across the country, and then implementation be done as as a country. Uh, I've often said through this pandemic response, we need a united plan for the United States. 
And could you just touch on, um, do you think it's possible that we could see political interference with these independent outside committees like ACIP, or is that sort of harder to do? Well, those uh, committees have been set up for exactly uh, the reasons that you, you, you're alluding to, to, uh, to invite expert outside uh, high-level rigorous scientific uh, input. Uh, in fact, this is why uh, when uh, I was at HHS, uh, I spent a lot of time interacting with the uh, expert advisory groups because we knew that we had some of the best scientists in the world in our country and we wanted their input and wanted their advice. So that kind of theme is really important right now, especially as we, as a nation, make a decision about any COVID vaccine going forward. Excellent, thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks for taking a second question from me. I'm wondering about um, the two week pause I talked about before. I'm wondering if that is a better option than sending all the students home, especially in the light of you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Deborah, Deborah Burks have said that, you know, it's not a good idea to send college students home um, because they may seed outbreaks wherever they come from. Yeah, so our, these themes get so complex <laughs> as we've all witnessed. I mean, there's so much movement to, to get students onto campus from their home communities in the first place. Um, and so I, I think having a two-week pause is, is a very reasonable strategy so that all the efforts related to uh, the status of COVID on any campus is reviewed in a, in a regular and open and timely fashion. And uh, to send people home sort of on a uh, more immediate basis uh, could be extremely disruptive for everyone and then also risks spreading uh, the viral transmission back in the home communities, as, as I mentioned before. So I think that's what these administrators and uh, college leaders are trying to avoid. So I, I think um, in lack of other definitive data, re reassessing on a regular basis is a reasonable approach. All right, thanks very much. Uh, next question. Um, Dr. Koh, I wanted to, to know about um, why is no one hearing what happened to that one patient that sidelined the AstraZeneca vaccine? And are, do we have enough representation of different groups? I mean, uh, are there people over 65 um, testing the vaccine? Yeah, so uh, you have all followed uh, the status of this AstraZeneca trial and in the UK, the regulators there allowed the trial to restart just mm -hmm. a number of days ago. Uh, here in the US, the regulators are still weighing uh, the decisions. So we're, uh, watching that very, very carefully. And, if, and you probably know that this phase three trial for the AstraZeneca vaccine is also occurring in uh, other places in, in the world, uh, Brazil and uh, South Africa, I believe. I'll have to check that. So this is done um, by country, but then the countries have to communicate and coordinate with one another. Um, you're, you're right, there have been some concerns raised about uh, transparency issues, uh, about the status of that one subject, uh, the, the details about uh, 
for, for a clinical course since uh, coming down with that uh, neurologic uh, condition called transverse myelitis. Uh, we hear that uh, she has been released from the hospital, but there's not much more information um, that's forthcoming. So, you know, there are issues of, um, of confidentiality that uh, these companies try to uphold as they enroll subjects in these trials. But on the other hand, uh, as we've now said a number of times, the urgency for transparency and accountability is uh, so high right now. And especially regulators in the US and, US and elsewhere uh, have asked for much more information than what's been released so far. So I, I anticipate that information will, will be forthcoming. While, while I'm at it, you all, you all know that uh, last week, was it, uh, <laughs> I think it was last week, so much has happened. Those CEOs of nine pharmaceutical companies uh, pledged uh, that their trials would be done in the most scientific and transparent uh, way. So um, they've made that pledge. Uh, that includes the, uh, um, the AstraZeneca uh, CEO. So, uh, you know, we, we need uh, those words turned into action right now. But do we know about the groups that are, are in these trials? I mean, are there people over 65 and maybe over 80? Are there pregnant women? Um... So um, we, I don't have access to the exact numbers, and of course, those trials are ongoing. Uh, they're supposed to be reaching some 30,000 people, and um, we all know that 30,000, 30, that number has not been reached yet. So I, I, I anticipate those numbers continue to change as, as we speak. But, but the goal is to enroll high-risk people, uh, adults, older adults, and then also to increase the percentages of uh, people of color. I, I, there's been some attention to that very important theme. So you're, you're right, this, these trials are gonna be most helpful when they enroll people who are at high risk, uh, older adults, people of color, um, and then we'll, we'll get to see all those results when the trial is um, completed and all the enrollment is done and, and get our scientists here and around the world to, to look at those in a transparent and rigorous fashion. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for coming back for round two. Um, I, I, you were a uh, Massachusetts Health Secretary, so I wanted to ask uh, about the, the supply chain issues again. Um, if there are, whether it's in the spring or even early winter of 2021, millions of doses available, um, what would your advice be to states in terms of ramping up supplies? I mean, do you do you envision states once again bidding against each other for sort of simple items like these sharps kits or things like that? Okay, so you're talking about seasonal flu in particular? Or? No, the COVID vaccine. So when we have millions of COVID vaccine available in the winter or spring of 2021, um, CDC has said it'll send syringes, um, but not things like sharps kits, not things like gloves. So, you know, states are going to need presumably millions of those and every state is going to be doing it at once. I, I would think that could lead to some kind of, you know, bidding war or just supply shortage. So again, when you, when you think about the seasonal flu vaccination effort and you, you step back and take, take a big look at it from, from a national point of view, I, 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 view, I call it a annual minor public health miracle that we get to do this year in and year out involving 
hundreds of millions of doses and tens of millions of people. So it requires uh, first, you know, developing a new vaccine every year. That's what the seasonal flu vaccination efforts uh, involve. Uh, and then lots of coordination between state, federal, and local officials early on, uh, way before vaccinations ever begin, to uh, identify uh, how much is needed uh, across each state and addressing the, the need at, at a city and local level too. So that when distribution occurs, it's, it's done seamlessly and then people get access to uh, timely vaccination as, as needed. Uh, over time, for example, uh, we've seen uh, increasing roles of pharmacists and pharmacies to, to do this, uh, businesses, schools, faith-based organizations. So when you stop and think about it, it's an unbelievable uh, public health collaboration and, and it's something that I know that every public health official is very proud of. For, for seasonal flu this year, I know the CDC has ordered much more uh, in terms of vaccine doses to, to make this fall go uh, as well as possible. And as I mentioned before, we, we got to make that really strong and show the American people at this critical time that it's going to go very, very well and, and build confidence that, that a process is protecting people as we move into COVID vaccine. So I'm, I'm hoping that all these efforts, in summary, are a foundation for a process that improves coordination at the federal, state, and local level going forward. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Uh, thanks very much, Jen. Uh, Dr. Coe, I wonder if you could comment on um, whether uh, having a presidential election and a vaccine rollout at the same time is a great thing in terms of public trust. Um, uh, Joe Biden is giving a vaccine speech today about one o'clock and uh, two o'clock and uh, Trump is preempting that at 1 p.m. with a vaccine uh, thing that he just announced. Uh, is there a precedent for this? And like, what is this, you know, what's your take on how public trust uh, does or doesn't do in, in the midst of this kind of stuff? Well, uh, first, it's good to hear your voice again. Uh, thank you for your continued interest. Um, you know, I, I was the state health commissioner under multiple re Republican governors, and then I was the assistant secretary uh, under a Democratic president. So I always viewed vaccination as a public health effort, a scientific effort, and not a partisan effort. Um, and we, we have to keep that standard high at this critical time go, going forward. Um, you know, vaccination and prevention are, are life-saving efforts that apply to everybody. It, has, it, it shouldn't have anything to do with uh, elections and, and partisan negotiations or any of those uh, themes. And as we've mentioned many times, uh, we got to keep the trust and confidence high. And we're, everybody in public health is concerned uh, about that trust and confidence being shaken for, for multiple reasons. And the last thing we need whenever a COVID vaccine is approved is having people refusing to take it because they don't trust the process of approval. And we're seeing some polls, you're all probably aware uh, of uh, some concern from the American public uh, about taking such a vaccine if, if and when approval occurs. And we just cannot allow that to happen. Otherwise this pandemic will just go on indefinitely and that will be disaster. So um, th this is a time where, once again, if we can show that everyone is working together 
uh, as a nation, um, as a bipartisan, in fact, nonpartisan effort, as it always has and should be, uh, that's the way to get this pandemic behind us. Uh, did you have a follow-up? Uh, I also wonder if, do you have any concern about um, HHS uh, and CDC, the various agencies stepping on their own feet with how they're describing the rollout uh, just today? Uh, HHS Deputy Chief of Staff Paul uh, Mango said that everyone will be vaccinated by April. And then like an hour or two later, uh, Dr. Redfield at CDC just told the Senate that it's gonna be the end of the second quarter, uh, third quarter before we can start to talk about that. You know, that's July and later. You know, I just worry with 2009, there was concerns about shortages and surpluses that disappointed people. You know, how careful do you have to be throwing around these rollout numbers if you're, you know, in charge of this sort of thing to not create that kind of expectation? Sorry for the long message. <laughs> Uh, no, it's a good question. So you know well, and everyone knows so well that uh, one of the many challenges of this pandemic response in our country has been the mixed messaging. Uh, and we, we have too many examples of that. So you've just cited another one, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it's really important to have consistent messaging for the American public, whether it's from HHS or federal government or the, or the White House, because people need to see in this country that there is a unified system working on their behalf. And when the mixed messaging occurs, all it does is sow confusion. Um, and then the distrust rises. And that's just absolutely tragic and unacceptable. So those examples you cited are, are concerning. Um, you know, we, uh, if I can just say on the COVID vaccine, in particular, there's so many uncertainties about it, about how many vaccines uh, candidates will be approved, one or several? Uh, when will that approval occur? Uh, how much vaccine will be available initially as it gets distributed? Uh, who, who will get the vaccine first? Uh, the, the, the timeliness uh, of uh, distribution and the vaccination efforts going forward? So based on all that, I, I think any public projection of when that process can be completed has to be made very, very carefully. And it's got to be uh, consistent by the leaders in government right now. Thank you very much. That was all really very helpful. I really appreciate it, sir. And it's Thank good you. talking to you again. Thank you. Great. Um, Dr. Coe, do you have any other final thoughts to share with us before we go? No, thank you for your interest in public health. Um, I close by saying that um, I had the privilege of teaching at this great public health school. We have students from around the world. Uh, and I used to tell them that they have chosen an incredibly important, fascinating field, but a challenge is the field uh, is invisible. Uh, now I say, that I congratulate them for joining a fascinating and very important field and the field is very visible. It's never been more visible. And the importance of public health and prevention has never been uh, higher than a time like this. So um, when we have press interactions like this, you can help us send out the message, the importance of public health. It's just critically important to uh, build on this going forward so we can all enjoy the incredible gift of uh, health in all of our lives. 
So thank you so much. This concludes the September 16th press conference.